The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Growing organic vegetables is Susan Mulvihill's passion. She has learned many lessons from her consistent gardening of five acres in Spokane, Washington with her husband, Bill. Their large raised bed garden yields some mighty fine edible crops. She is always curious and researches answers to their garden challenges. Susan loves sharing her findings through numerous outlets. Her newest book, The Vegetable Garden Problem Solver Handbook, promises to be another bestseller. The book will help you identify and manage diseases and other common problems on edible plants. It is a great companion for her bestseller, The Vegetable Garden Pest Handbook. She is also the co-author of the Northwest Gardener's Handbook. Susan and Bill's Garden has been featured on the popular public television program Growing a Greener World, hosted by Joe Lample. Helping other gardeners be successful has driven Susan to produce and host over 400 episodes on her weekly YouTube channel, Susan in the Garden. She is the longtime garden columnist for the Sunday edition of the Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington. She has been a Spokane County Master Gardener for over 20 years and a nationally known garden speaker. Her website can be found at susanintheGarden.com and contains resources for organic pest control along with many other guides designed for gardening success. Susan has been featured previously on the Garden Question podcast in episode 47, Developing Your Battle Strategy for This Year's Bug Wars. This is episode 96, Planning for Your Successful Vegetable Garden with Susan Mulvihill. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Susan, every year seems to be a crazy weather year. This year appears to be no exception. How can we plan ahead to protect our plants? Boy, that is a good question because you're absolutely right. It seems like no matter where a person lives, we've just had crazy weather extremes I think all of us are sort of scrambling trying to come up with methods that will help our plants get through them. I think we could look at some of the most common things people are experiencing these days. So one would certainly be heat waves. We've been having more intense heat in the last few years, way more intense. We've been up to 114 degrees for a couple of weeks, and that is hot. The types of things people can do is they can put shade cloth above their plants. It's always a good idea to suspend it over something above the plant rather than just draping it right on the plant. 
because then there's not a lot of air circulation. It's also important to mulch the soil surface in your garden, and that is very helpful because it helps the soil retain its moisture. It's also important to water regularly and know that when the temperatures go up, you need to increase the amount of time your garden is getting. Preferably not overhead watering. That's not a good idea, but I realize not everybody has a drip irrigation system or a soaker hose set up. If you can, that's what I recommend. Another thing to do is to consider looking for bolt-resistant vegetable varieties. If you do a little looking, you'll be amazed at how there are more than you would think. Another thing that people are experiencing is unseasonably cold temperatures. The playbook in the weather department is not going according to the normal routine, and so we end up with some surprise cold temperatures. The types of things you can do there are you can use floating row cover or clear plastic over hoops. That setup is called a low tunnel. Folks aren't familiar with floating row cover. That is a lightweight sort of porous fabric that lets sunlight and moisture through it. It comes in different weights. So the heavier weights, of course, would provide a little bit more frost protection and cold protection for the plants. If you use plastic, you want to make sure that on the real sunny days, you open up the ends of the plastic tunnel so that the poor little plants don't get fried under there. If you get early or late snowfall, we have had some big surprises in that department lately. (laughs) Our winter began on November 4th, and we never had fall. So that was a little bit of an adjustment. There's not a lot you can do with that. Keep a close eye on the forecast. You might be able to bundle up your plants a little bit with blankets and tarps, but I strongly encourage using some type of supports underneath so that the plants won't be crushed by the weight of the snow. Windstorms, I think, have been occurring with more frequency, and we actually live in an area that gets even more wind than most of Spokane. I think plant supports are always important. Even if I'm growing something like tomatoes or peppers in cages, I always secure them to a stake so that the cage won't fall over or blow over. Something I've been doing for quite a few years is a special method for keeping our corn patch safe from strong winds. As you know, corn has these stubby little roots and their stalks can snap off really easily right above them. I have to tell you from personal experience, there is nothing more depressing than going out to your garden the day after a windstorm only to find your entire corn patch lying flat on the ground. I mean, that is a showstopper. What I do is, first of all, I grow my corn in raised beds, but this method that I'm going to explain works for any kind of planting of corn. I put stakes at the four corners of the patch, plus a few at the midpoint on the sides. And then what I do is I let the plants grow to a little over a foot tall in the spring. And then I run a line of jute twine around the perimeter on the stakes at about the 12 inch height above the soil. Then I let the plants grow to about three feet tall. And I run a second line of jute up at about two and a half feet or so above the soil. And I let the plants grow until they're maybe four to five feet tall, and I run a third line of jute at that height. 
That way, when the wind blows hard, the plants are going to sway a little bit, but they don't move so much that they're going to snap off at the base. That's my little strategy for trying to thwart the windstorms. Of course, flooding, a lot of folks are dealing with that nowadays. And the suggestions I'm going to make are definitely proactive because if your area has been experiencing a lot of flooding in past years, you need to be thinking about, okay, what can I do to protect my garden from future floods? One thing would be considering growing your crops in tall raised beds because they're going to have good drainage and the roots will be up higher above the soil surface where all that water is. If you're using grow bags or other types of containers, I would recommend putting them up on supports like boards or bricks or blocks. You're also going to want to look at how the water moves through your yard because you might have to do something that helps divert it and clears it out of your yard, I think. Anything you can do to help the water drain. Another thing I wanted to mention is if your crops are sitting in water, you might need to check with your health department to make sure they're safe to eat. You know, I hate to even bring that up, but if you have your plants with whatever it is you're going to be harvesting sitting in that water, and maybe there's a potential of contamination from things nearby, you definitely want to make sure that's safe to eat. Are the negative weather effects on a plant considered abiotic or physiological disorder? So they are actually the exact same thing. It's just two names for the same problem. And they are called abiotic because they're not caused by living organisms like bacteria or fungi or viruses caused diseases. Weather conditions can bring on these types of disorders, but other things can too. The interesting thing is that these types of disorders are either a plant's reaction to weather conditions or something we as gardeners either did or didn't do. <laughs> I always feel kind of guilty saying that. For example, maybe we didn't water our plants enough, or maybe we went overboard pruning the leaves off of plants. It's things like that. Examples of abiotic disorders would include things that a lot of gardeners have heard of. Blossom end rot, bitterness, fruit cracking, leaf rolling, plants that bolt to seed way before they should, or maybe the leaves on a plant getting sunburned. It's things that might be caused by the weather, and unfortunately, a lot of times, it's from something that we did or didn't do. An example a lot of us have dealt with is blossom end rot on our tomatoes. That's abiotic, right? It is, and it is a very misunderstood disorder. It primarily impacts tomatoes, but I've had it affect zucchinis, peppers, and eggplants as well, which I think is really frustrating. What you're going to see is this brown kind of leathery tip on the blossom end of the fruits. Here's where the sciencey part gets, but it's so fascinating. In order for plants to develop healthy fruits, they need enough calcium. Most soils have plenty of calcium, but how does it get into the plants for the fruits? Well, the plant's roots need to take up the calcium from the soil and deliver it to the plants. In order for that to happen, the soil needs to be consistently moist. And I don't mean sopping wet, I mean just lightly moist. If we're inconsistent about watering our gardens, 
that can be a huge problem, especially in the summer. I've seen all kinds of social media posts about blossom and rot, and I get how frustrating it is, but I've been amazed at a few of the kind of extreme comments I've seen on them. I've seen where folks say, oh, I add Tums or other kinds of antacids to my soil. I put eggshells in the soil. I use Epsom salts, and I never get blossom and rot. And I've seen folks say, I even pour milk over my plants, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And, you know, I'm not trying to be rude because I get it. I totally get how frustrating these problems are. I have a feeling that the reason they're not experiencing blossom and rot is because they're probably also watering their plants regularly. They just don't realize what's preventing the problem. Blossom end rot does not bother cherry tomatoes. That's encouraging. Unfortunately, it impacts all kinds of tomatoes. My husband and I grow lots of those elongated paste tomatoes because we like to make tomato sauce and salsa and that type of thing. They can really be impacted by blossom end rot. As I was researching this disorder for my book, I learned a few interesting things, and maybe this might be helpful. First of all, the fruits cannot absorb calcium through their skin. So if you're pouring milk over your plants <laughs> on the fruits, it's not getting in there and helping them. If you spray calcium on the plant's leaves, the calcium doesn't have a way that it can move from the leaves into the fruits. Also, Epsom salts, which I know people use for a lot of things, that actually contains magnesium, not calcium. So it won't help the fruits in any way. If you feed your plants with a whole lot of nitrogen fertilizer, that is promoting leafy green growth. When that happens, the calcium will go to the leaves and not the fruits. It's really a maddening disorder but it's also pretty interesting. And once you understand that, oh, if I'm really good about watering my plants regularly, I'm not going to have this problem. I should also add, though, if the weather is super hot and the plants are really struggling, you're probably going to see some blossom end rot. It does occur more frequently in the earlier part of the fruiting season rather than later. So you might have sort of a, a first harvest where you have some tomatoes with that leathery tip on them. Then hopefully the remainder of the harvest that's to come will be untouched. How can many of these challenges in the garden be prevented proactively when you're planning your garden for this next season? Well, I have to say that I personally love growing our garden in raised beds. And I know it's not for everybody, but they've got great drainage. The soil stays loose so the roots can grow more easily. The soil warms up earlier in the spring. And I find it's a lot easier to plan where everything is going to go each year. That planting idea is really important so that you're not putting the same things in the same spot year after year after year. One of the things I emphasize in my book is to take good care of your soil by adding things like organic compost in early spring and early fall, because that is going to provide plants with a lot of nutrients. It's also important to add certain types of organic fertilizers to the soil based on the type of plant you're going to grow in a bed. Keep that in mind. Doing a good job of planning what you want to grow 
ahead of time is important, especially if you're trying to address a problem such as hotter summers or disease issues, because you might move things around a little bit in your garden to try to prevent problems with that. And certainly not overcrowding your plantings because then they're more susceptible to insect and disease problems, plus they're competing with each other for moisture, nutrients, and space, and that makes a huge difference. What can we do in our gardens in addition to that to minimize the chance of diseases in the garden? The idea of crop rotation. It's that idea of not planting the same crop or family of crops in the same bed year after year after year. Why don't we pick on tomatoes some more? And the nightshade family, that's what they belong to. So other members would be potatoes, peppers, eggplants, and tomatillos. All of these plants can be fairly susceptible to disease issues. If you continually plant tomatoes, for example, in the same bed, or in a bed that also had potatoes, peppers, eggplants, or tomatillos in, there's a greater chance of perpetuating a disease issue. It's a really good idea to plan ahead. I like to tell folks to make a little template of your garden that you can make a printout of for each year. Note where everything was planted. Then that way, when you're getting ready to plan for a new season, you get out your little templates from the last two or three years, and you look to see, where did I grow tomatoes last year? Where did I grow potatoes? Okay, here's a good spot to grow those crops this year. Another thing we can do is to mulch the surface of our vegetable beds. In addition to helping the soil retain its moisture, mulch also prevents plant leaves from coming into direct contact with the soil where disease pathogens might be. It also prevents pathogens from splashing up onto the plant leaves during watering or during a rainstorm. A bonus thing is that mulch also makes it difficult for weed seeds to germinate. So I like that aspect too. Remember to support your plants with stakes, and that's for the exact same reason. You want to get that foliage off of the soil, especially for crops like tomatoes, which sure are susceptible to a lot of diseases. If you want to purchase seedlings from garden centers, nurseries, or plant sales, and there is nothing wrong with that, it falls upon you to inspect the plants closely first to make sure there aren't any plant diseases starting up on them. You're not bringing home an insect problem because there are certain types of insects that are vectors for disease, and that means they spread the disease. You can also consider doing something called intercropping. That's where you're planting flowers and other types of plants with certain crops that are really susceptible to those insects that spread disease. Talking about things like cucumber beetles, flea beetles, leafhoppers, it's, it's sort of to confuse them. It makes it harder for the insect to find the vegetable crop and then wreak its havoc on it. If you're dealing with a disease, be sure to disinfect your tools, like pruners, in between cuts. The thing you need to know is do not use bleach on metal tools, and that's because it pits the metal and pathogens can hide in there. Instead, what you want to use is either rubbing alcohol, and gosh, that is really cheap stuff, or hand sanitizer, which we all probably have a lot of (laughs) around our houses these days. If you want to use bleach for something, use it to sterilize your seed starting equipment, your flats and inserts, or plastic pots, anything that's not metal. Always space your plants appropriately. I'm going to really harp on this because 
they need good air circulation around them. Look at your seed packets, your plant tags, your vegetable gardening books to find out what the right spacing is. And actually, I just remembered I have a chart in my book that gives good guidelines for spacing your plants so they have enough room to grow. Dispose of diseased plant material. I cannot emphasize this enough. Don't continue the problem. Don't put it in your compost pile because most home compost piles do not get hot enough for a long enough period of time to kill those pathogens. Another thing we should all be doing is watering the soil in our gardens and not the plants. I know we feel like we have to water the plants, but it's the soil that's doing the work. Try to avoid getting the leaves wet. That makes it easier for diseases to spread. If you do need to do overhead watering, I would recommend doing it early in the day so that the leaves have plenty of time to dry off. If you need to do hand watering, think about getting a water wand. This is a fabulous tool. It's something you screw on to the end of your hose. You can easily direct the water right down at the soil instead of having to bend over all the time to water the soil. Keep up with the weeds. I know nobody likes to do that, and I get it. But there are so many types of weeds that I discovered are alternate hosts for disease pathogens and actually for some insects. That should give you a little extra stimulus for keeping up with the weeding. If you continue to have problems with a specific disease over and over and over, consider looking for varieties that are resistant to it. For my book, I created a chart that lists the different disease initials to look for on seed packets or in seed catalogs. That can be a big help in preventing disease issues. And then last but not least, there are organic products you can use proactively in order to prevent them in your garden in future seasons. So I'm talking about things like biofungicides, different types of plant extracts such as garlic, neem oil, or thyme oil, and sulfur fungicides. There's tools out there to deal with diseases, but it doesn't hurt to do a lot of proactive planning and care of our plants. How important is selecting the right varieties for your region in preventing plant diseases? I think it's important to take into account what your region's growing conditions are, especially as it relates to diseases. I shouldn't boast, but I am lucky in that I live in an area that isn't humid. We don't have a lot of really nasty plant diseases. But if I were to live in, say, Georgia, (laughs) where I know it's humid, I would really look for varieties that have resistance to diseases that are common there. I definitely think it's a good idea to talk with your local master gardeners because they are going to know what grows best in your region and if there are disease issues that you should be aware of. It's really easy to locate your local program if you don't know where they are. All you have to do is a web search on the words master gardener program near me. Easy. The best part of all is that their service is free. So you can't beat that. I believe a great source for successful gardening is your new book, The Vegetable Garden Problem Solver Handbook. First of all, congratulations on completing the research and writing it in a style that's easy to understand. Would you tell us about your latest book? I'd be happy to, and thanks very much. I did so much research for this book. Something that was really important to me, especially because I've been a master gardener for 21 years, is that I wanted 
everything I related to readers to be based on research from educational institutions such as Cornell University, Cooperative Extension Services, scientific papers, and so on. I wanted to make sure everything that I shared was very reliable. The Vegetable Garden Problem Solver Handbook was designed to be a companion book to my previous book, The Vegetable Garden Pest Handbook, because there just wasn't enough room to write about everything, including bugs, in a single volume. After I had written the pest handbook, I kept thinking about all of the interesting and frustrating types of garden challenges that we all encounter in our gardens. And I thought, you know, it probably would help to put together some type of a guide to dealing with them. For the Vegetable Garden Problem Solver Handbook, in the first chapter, I start with a discussion of smart growing practices so that you will have healthy, productive crops. Then I move into the weird stuff. (laughs) So things like pollination or germination issues, the weather extremes like we were talking about earlier, and those pesky abiotic disorders. Chapter two is all about the most commonly encountered vegetable plant diseases, and there are 29 of them in there. To help gardeners narrow down the type of disease that might be bothering a specific crop, I created a huge chart that's organized by the different types of crops that we grow. So let's say you're having a problem with your bean plants. You're going to go to that part of the chart, and then you'll read descriptions of what different diseases would look like on bean plants, or on the pods, I should add. Those are going to point you to profiles of each of the diseases that could cause that. There are all sorts of photos in that chapter to help people identify diseases in their gardens. And I list all sorts of strategies you can try along with organic products that control or prevent diseases. That is followed with detailed information on the different strategies for preventing diseases. In the third chapter, I write about 15 of the most commonly encountered critters in the garden. The information includes help with identifying what you're dealing with, their favorite vegetable crops, what their damage looks like, and a whole bunch of strategies, including some pretty creative ones, for keeping them away. Okay, you're walking through your garden and you see a plant that's just not quite looking right. Where do you start figuring out what's wrong with that plant with your book? I think it's really important to start out by doing a little bit of sleuthing. First of all, just really look at the plant or plants and think about what looks different about them. Are they wilting? Do the leaves have spots on them? Look at where the problems are on the plants. Are they on the leaves, the stems, down near the roots? The next thing you want to do is think about, did something change in my garden recently? For example, let's say you brought home some new plants. Maybe they were carrying a disease and that disease spread. Maybe you had unusual Weather conditions like really high humidity combined with rain and some wind, that could cause the spread of disease. Another thing might be that you added a new amendment to your soil or a new fertilizer. So let's say you accidentally used some tainted manure in your garden. The plants have herbicide damage. Do cover that in the book because I think herbicide damage can look like a disease. It's awful. You wouldn't want a disease or herbicide damage, frankly. It can look like it's a disease when actually it's caused by something in the soil. Maybe you've seen a different insect in your garden. 
take note of those things. Take pictures of what the damage looks like. It's amazing what you can find on the internet if you narrow down on what the signs and symptoms look like. If you have my book, you can look through that big chart that I just mentioned and try to narrow down what the disease might be if that's what it is. Don't be bashful about talking to your local master gardeners. Ask them for help identifying what's wrong with your plant. Been a master gardener for so long, and we love solving mysteries. <laughs> One of the more frustrating things to me about vegetable gardening is that critters spoil the harvest before I get a chance to pick it. How do you deal with critters in your garden? I'm right there with you, Craig, because it's just maddening when you've been waiting for that tomato to ripen or the cantaloupe to ripen, wanting to pick those first few things, and something gets to it before you do. Here in Spokane, we're in a rural area, and we deal with deer, moose, porcupines, raccoons. We used to deal with skunks. We don't have them anymore. We have gophers. We have meadow voles, mice. <laughs> you get the idea. I mean, we've had yeah. a lot of different types of creatures in our garden and around our garden. Over the years, I guess I should say maybe it was a blessing because it helped us come up with a lot of strategies. But generally speaking, when you're dealing with critters, there's three main approaches that you can take. One is to repel them through the use of things like organic repellents. And I always caution folks to read the label to make sure it's safe to use around edible crops. You can use things like motion-activated sprinklers. That's something that has a motion sensor on it, and you can set it for a certain height in a certain direction. When something comes into that area, you've hooked it up to the hose, and it blasts whatever's there <laughs> with water. You just hope that you didn't forget about it, and you were the one <laughs> who got blasted. There's also ultrasonic repellents, and those ones emit this high-pitched sound that we can't hear as humans, but they can, and it either scares or annoys them and makes them go elsewhere. Sometimes they have lights that come on as well that are motion-activated, and that also startles them. Next thing you can try is scaring them. That would be something like using a decoy of some sort or moving different types of objects around in your garden that make some movement and maybe a little bit of sound. So like a pinwheel is an example where as it turns, sometimes it kind of thunks a little bit and that's a sound that bothers them. You can put mylar balloons in the area and of course they're moving and the light is making them kind of flash a little bit. You can use toy snakes. This is something you can get at the dollar store. They look reasonably lifelike. You can sort of pose them in somewhat believable poses <laughs> in your garden. That has worked really well for us, especially keeping certain types of birds away from crops that they really like, like leafy greens. That works. Also, wind chimes. The thing with using any of these scare tactics is that you need to move them around in the garden a lot. Because if they're always in the same spot, the critter's just going to get acclimated to it and go, eh, that's nothing to worry about. And then the third way is to create a barrier of some sort. It might be floating row cover or bird netting that's on hoops over plants. It might be the use of chicken wire to make like a little cage around your plants. It might be fencing. If you're dealing with deer, unfortunately, it needs to be at least seven feet tall because they can jump like nobody's business. 
you should use closed composting systems that have lids on them if you're dealing with things like raccoons or other types of critters that want to get into them. Also, if you are having problems with those types of critters getting into your trash cans, make sure they have secure lids that they can't get into. Those would be the main approaches you would take for trying to keep them away from your crops. Is there a way to figure out what's actually nibbling on your plants? Yes. One of the things that we love having is a game camera. We bought it a few years ago. It's not terribly expensive. We've got it mounted on an old tripod so that we can move it to different areas of our yard. It is a great way to find out what's going on, especially under the cover of darkness. Because, you know, a lot of times you just know something has bothered your corn patch or your tomatoes or whatever, but you don't know what exactly did it. It helps to note the kind of damage and which types of crops they've bothered because certain critters do focus on certain types of plants for one reason or another. If your soil is soft, you might look for footprints. In my book, what I did is I have this chapter on dealing with critters in the garden. There are 15 profiles of all different kinds of commonly encountered creatures. For each one, I have what their footprints look like because I thought, well, that might be helpful. The different types of damage, what their favorite plants are, and then a whole bunch of strategies that involve either scaring them, repelling them, or setting up some type of a barrier to keep them from getting to what they really love. I can't help but imagining as you're talking here about scaring them off, How far are we away from having actually robots patrolling our garden, zap these critters by whatever means and scare them off? (laughs) You're giving me an idea here. (laughs) Sometimes we see that we have a critter that is something we really don't want to see, like porcupines, for example. Not from the standpoint of the fact that they have all these quills on them, more that they like to climb up into our fruit trees and they chew the stem where apples and other types of fruits are attached so that they all drop down to the ground. Then they get down out of the tree and eat them down on the ground. Or they go into our raspberry patch and they just go up and over them. They don't care if they snap different types of stems over at the base and totally destroy the whole patch. They just know they want those fruits. We see things like that and we think, oh, great, it's a porcupine. Then other things were like, oh, look at that. That's a moose, you know, here's a deer. And it's not doing any big harm in our yard. So we just think, oh, that's really cool to know what's going on after it gets dark. All right, that does it. We're going to have to work on a drone with a laser. Take those porcupines out of the trees. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked a little bit about the vegetable garden problem solving handbook coming soon. So we're looking forward to that. I've seen the early release of it. And oh boy, it's going to be a great seller for you too. It's going to be a bestseller like your previous book. It's a great companion for your garden library. And that's the vegetable garden pest handbook. You've given us a little bit of taste about it, but could you give us a quick glimpse how it will help you be more successful in your garden? Sure. I'd be happy to. It came out in March of 2021. I was trying to create something that would be a really useful guide because I am asked so much about insects. It seems like the number one question I get from folks is, what is this bug and how do I get rid of it? (laughs) A lot of times it is a damaging insect. Sometimes it's a beneficial insect that just looks so alarming that you think, oh, I have to get rid of this from my garden. 
So I really tried to take an approach of making the book easy to use, easy to understand, and a great guide to the types of things we're going to encounter in the garden. First chapter of the book, I talk about organic gardening and why it's so important, how to identify different types of bugs in your garden, and how to attract all of the wonderful beneficial insects that we all want more of. The second chapter is all about specific bugs. So just like with the Vegetable Garden Problem Solver Handbook, For this book, I created this massive chart. Go to the crop you're growing. You read descriptions of the damage that different types of insects might cause on that crop. Those all point you to profiles of each of those insects. There's also a chart about beneficial insects, what they look like, which types of insects they prey upon, and how to get more of those in your garden. In that second chapter, it's filled with organic strategies and techniques and products that people can use to control the damaging types of insects. Then the third chapter has descriptions of organic insect control products. I really wanted people to understand what types of products were available to them that are organic to understand which insects they would control, how to use them, when to use them, And more importantly, are there any precautions about using them in your garden? For example, I was quite surprised to learn that neem oil is toxic to pollinators. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that. Neem has this great reputation. It doesn't mean you can't use it. You just have to be smart about applying it either really early in the morning or really late in the day when pollinators aren't active. That was the goal of the first half of my third chapter. Then I have a whole bunch of do-it-yourself projects that you can use for trapping bugs, barriers to keep them away, all different kinds of fun things, uh, covers for raised beds. Another thing that's in there is making an insect hotel to attract more beneficial insects to our gardens and so on. So it's really packed with all kinds of useful information. I have to say, bugs are cool. A lot of people don't feel that way, but once you start going through the book and seeing the different kinds of insects and understanding what they do, what their life cycle is, and so on, it really is fascinating. Susan, you're a very accomplished garden communicator. I can only imagine how crazy this time of year is for you because I know you're doing your book promotion, you're writing a weekly column in the paper, you're shooting a video every week for your YouTube channel you're a speaker on the speaker circuit. When do you have time to garden? This year, I'm starting to get really worried about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I know it's just going to be for a little bit. I get up really early in the morning. That helps. I'm a very organized person and I just think, okay, what do I need to accomplish today? Don't freak about tomorrow. (laughs) Just what do I need to do next? It's a labor of love for me. I am crazy about gardening. It just is so much fun. I love getting out and meeting everybody, hearing what their questions are, all of that. So yeah, it is going to be a really crazy year for me, but I'm attempting to enjoy it. (laughs) Can you give us a rundown, say like for March or April, where you might be speaking and maybe we can catch up with you there? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, one thing that's coming up pretty soon is the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival. That is in Seattle. I've gone for years and it is awesome. It's a five-day event and I'm speaking on three of the days. One is about critters in the garden. Imagine that. (laughs) 
Another is about abiotic disorders. And then I'm doing a shorter talk focusing in on a couple of different types of critters. I'm on a radio show after that, doing book signings, the meetings of our largest garden club in Spokane that has like 450 members. Whoa. <laughs> That's the Inland Empire Gardeners. They are fabulous. Let's see. I'm going to be speaking at a virtual symposium that everyone can come to. It's called the Cabin Fever Virtual Symposium. That is put on by Spokane County Master Gardeners. It begins on March 18th. And if anybody wants to check that out, just do a search on Cabin Fever. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. I think it's Cabin Fever Virtual Symposium. It might be Cabin Fever Gardening Symposium, but it's a great program and they're focusing on organic practices and environmentally friendly methods and so on. I am going to be one of the authors participating in the National Garden Bureau's program that's called Book Authors Talk Gardening. That will air on March 23rd. It's a free event, but you have to register for it. And if you go to the National Garden Bureau, you can find the registration for that. That gives, gives a little bit of an idea. Yes, you're going to be busy, busy, busy. <laughs> what do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? Well, this probably won't come as a surprise, but I would have to say the number one thing to do is to ditch the chemicals and go organic. It's so doable. I've done it for years. It's not expensive. You just need to be smart about the different types of things you and I've already talked about, being proactive to keep diseases away, doing things that will keep our plants healthy and productive. The thing with pesticides is that they're non-selective. So let's say you're having a problem with aphids and you go to the garden center or the home center and you find a pesticide that says on the label, it will kill aphids. And you think that's perfect. Well, the problem is that, yes, it will kill the aphids, but it is non-selective, meaning it will also kill the beneficial predator insects that probably would have helped you with the problem in the first place. And the thing with herbicides that we've been learning in recent years is that they remain in the soil a lot longer than we've realized. A lot of them are really harmful to the beneficial microorganisms that are in the soil. It's really a good idea to get away from these chemicals. We really need to start growing organically. What's a garden myth you'd like to smash today? It's maybe that gardening is difficult, but it really isn't. You just need to be observant. Don't be bashful about asking others questions, including me. Email me, folks. It's susan at susansinthegarden.com. I'm happy to answer your questions in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, don't overextend yourself if you're brand new to gardening. Be realistic about the amount of time that you have to devote to your garden. But gardening is one of the very best things you can do for yourself. You're going to get all this fabulous produce. You can share it with neighbors and friends or your food bank in addition to feeding your family. You're out in the fresh air. You're getting exercise. You're seeing all the cool insects and other creatures that are around your garden. It is something that we all need to be doing. So no, it's not difficult if you want help. Just let me know and I can help answer your question. Now, gardening is fun and funny. Would you tell us a funny garden story? <laughs> I did think of something the other day and 
I don't know, it, to me, it seems hilarious. So I'm hoping <laughs> your listeners will think it's funny too. I really like to go for walks in our neighborhood. We're out in this rural area and there's a private road that runs right alongside our garden. One day, this was about a year and a half ago, I'd say, I had just barely turned onto that private road when I saw this guy jogging towards me. And I had never seen him before, but I'm a friendly person. I was smile and, you know, so we kind of passed each other. And all of a sudden behind me, I hear him say, you're Susan, right? I stopped and said, yes. (laughs) And he told me that he had moved to the area a couple of years ago. He was really interested in getting into gardening, but he didn't know anything about gardening in this location. So he said he went to YouTube and he stumbled across my videos and he was so tickled. Wow, there's somebody who lives in the same hardiness zone that I do, film in different areas around our yard, mostly in the vegetable garden in the back, but sometimes I'm out in front. He told me, okay, well, one day I was watching one of your videos and I thought that cabin looks kind of familiar because there's a cabin across the street from us hey, that pine tree looks like the one next door. And he said, that's when I realized you live right across the street from me. (laughs) So it's just so funny because I just thought, wow, you know, I mean, first of all, it's just so random that we ran into each other. And then to hear this story about how he suddenly realized that this person that was giving him gardening information was one of his neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) So does he come knock on your door and get direct advice now? You know, I was thinking that might happen, and I really don't mind. He's very, very nice, but he hasn't. Just every now and then, if we're out working in the garden, at least during gardening season, sometimes he and his wife walk by. So we say hi, and they're saying, what are you working on today or something? But uh, no, he hasn't been hitting, you know, hitting me up for a lot of advice. <laughs> well, what's your most valuable garden mistake? I would say in the last year, my big mistake was planting my warm season crops a bit too early for the conditions. And it wasn't so much that I was just so excited to get the plants in the ground. I mean, I guess I always am. But our spring weather was so strange. I waited longer than usual, put them in the ground, and it's like the temperatures just didn't want to warm up. This particularly set back the tomato plants, which didn't even start blooming and setting fruit until about September. I mean, this was just insane. I was hearing from a lot of gardeners who were having the same problem. What a lot of them did is they replaced their seedlings that they had put in the garden at the normal time with some greenhouse-grown plants. It turns out those ones did fine. I think I need to be a little more patient, although obviously I didn't have a crystal ball last year knowing what it was going to do. Just because it is May 25th, it's going to be perfectly fine to plant. You just have to go with the flow and just not get too anxious, I guess. Okay, I consider yourself a garden teacher. What has the teacher recently learned about horticulture and gardening? (laughs) (laughs) I learned something really great uh, last year about midway through the growing season. So I read a fantastic book that is called Plant, Grow, Harvest, Repeat. It's by Meg McAndrews Cowden, and it focuses on the concept of succession planting. And the idea is to be really aware of how long each crop will take to grow and produce 
and starting replacement plants to put into the garden as soon as the previous crops are done, or planting crops that don't take much room and, and mature quickly in the same beds with crops that take a long time to grow and produce, like let's say cabbage plants. They sort of take their sweet time getting going, so you could plant turnips or radishes or things like that. I really need to get more organized about exactly how long plants take to grow. Where's my window of opportunity? Is it at the beginning while they're still getting established or is it near the end? Hoping to hone my skills on succession planting because even if it's more produce than we can eat, we can give it to the food bank. I think that's a good skill to learn. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I would say in my garden, I have all sorts of really cool birds that visit us. I figured out one time that it was probably close to 100 different species of birds. My husband and I are both avid bird watchers. We worked really hard to create a landscape that would be attractive to them because when we bought our property, it was a bare piece of ground. There was one little indigenous ponderosa pine on it, and that was it. We thought about, okay, what do birds need? We worked hard to create that for them to make it more enclosed and planting native plants and ones that have berries and so on. And so we get to watch really cool birds coming for visits. You've already talked some about your vegetable garden. Could you tell us how you've set that up? I mentioned that we live in a rural location and our lot is five acres in size. We probably, over the last 30 years, have landscaped about 50% of that, (laughs) which may or may not have been a good idea, but we just love gardening so much that it's, it's fine so far. But what we did in our vegetable garden is we made 27 raised beds. I know that sounds like an awful lot, but most of them are about three feet by eight feet or four feet by eight feet, so they're not huge beds. We have a small hoop house that we use during the spring and summer months for growing heat-loving plants like peppers and melons. We have used it in the wintertime to grow really cold-tolerant plants, so things like kale and spinach and corn salad and mizuna and all different things like that. We have a small greenhouse. It's just six feet by eight feet, but that is used for kind of an interim step between seed starting indoors and going out into the garden itself. And so that's kind of a holding zone. We use drip irrigation for watering our garden. And I have to give a shout out to my husband, Bill, because he figured out how to do all that. (laughs) We use arbors for growing our pole beans. So we have a really cool arbor that is as long as two raised beds and it's in between so that I can stand in the shade and harvest the beans during hot summer days. We also use arbors to grow winter squash and cucumbers up on so that's kind of cool. We do a lot of composting. We have a three bin composting system. We grow everything organically And the area is surrounded by (laughs) seven and a half foot tall deer fencing because we don't want anything like that going into the garden and eating all the things we so lovingly have been tending. (laughs) What did your garden teach you last year that you're going to apply this coming year? 
Well, I have to say in the past couple of years, our summers have been hotter and hotter. And for years, I've grown a pole bean variety called Musica. It has been fabulous, but I learned that they do not like intense heat. So what I did is I did some research to try to find some heat tolerant varieties. The two names that kept coming up were Fortex and Rattlesnake. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to grow both of them. The Fortex did much better than the Rattlesnake. So we're growing that again this year. What are your future plans for your garden? This year, I'm planting more flowers in the vegetable garden because I want to attract more beneficials and pollinators and also to have more cut flowers. And what plant are you in love with this week? I'm excited about growing a new-to-me butternut squash variety. It is called Burpees Butterbush. It's one that grows in bush form rather than vining, so it takes up less space in the garden. It only needs 75 days to reach maturity. It should do much better in our garden because the regular type of butternut squash needs about 110 days, so that's a pretty significant difference. I'm excited to grow it and see how it does for us because I think butternut squash is fabulous. Susan, tell us how people may connect with you. My website is susansinthegarden.com, and it has all sorts of helpful resources, which has been my intent from the beginning. So there's seed starting guides, a composting guide, herb growing guide, garden book reviews, all sorts of ways to preserve your harvest because that's the key to vegetable gardening, right? And also there's a blog and just so much information there. And then I also post daily to Facebook and Instagram. 99% of the time it's a gardening topic. And I do shoot a new gardening video every week, which folks can find on my YouTube channel, which is also Susan's in the Garden. So far, I have over 400 videos. I don't know how that happened, but they all add up after a while. And then I write a weekly garden column for our Sunday newspaper here in Spokane, Washington, called the Spokesman Review. And that runs during the growing season. So... I'm on my time off right now, but I also put my columns on my blog each week. So it doesn't matter where you live, you can still read my columns. This has been episode 96, planning for your successful vegetable garden with Susan Mulvihill. Thank you, Susan. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.